This year from Pentecost to Advent, the Common Lectionary is following the story of Jesus' ministry as that story comes to us from the Gospel according to St. Mark. Today, a well-known, if sad, story from chapter 6. And Jesus came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And the congregation took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their own hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And Jesus could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The name of the town is Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, just across the Massachusetts state line. Latitude, 42 degrees, 30 minutes. Longitude, 70 degrees, 37 minutes. Population, 2,642. We're lower middle class with a sprinkling of professionals, 10% illiterate laborers. Politically, we're 86% Republican, 6% Democrat, 4% Socialist, the rest indifferent. Religiously, we're 86% Protestant, 12% Catholic, the rest indifferent. There are 125 horses in Grover's Corners at this minute, and now they're bringing in these automobiles. The best thing is just to stay home. I can remember when a dog could lay down and go to sleep in the middle of Main Street and nothing would disturb him all day. Nobody remarkable ever come out of it, so far as we know. This is the way we were in the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying, in our living, and in our dying. So how many times have you seen Thornton Wilder's Our Town? I think it's obligatory for every American to see it at least six times before she joins Emily Gibbs in the cemetery. I really didn't need to see it again. My preacher friend Steve and I have known each other for 30 years. We were in seminary together, and then our first calls were in the Philadelphia area together, and then we later served churches in the New York metro area, his in New Jersey, mine in Connecticut, so we've been hanging out together for 30 years. Wherever we've been, we've made it a practice to be part of a book discussion group. Although, to be honest, I should tell you that Steve and I could never find anyone else who wanted to join us in a book discussion group, so there were just the two of us. My wife makes fun of us. She calls us the book couple, which is not quite as formidable as the book group. And then Steve messed it all up by moving to Florida, but we decided 
before he left that as long as I was in New York, he would fly back at least once a year and we'd read a book together. And when he comes back to New York once a year, we always see a play together too. One year I asked Steve what he wanted to see and he said, Our Town. I thought it might be illegal to stage a production of Our Town in New York City. I thought maybe you could get arrested for excessive sentimentality, but apparently not because there was this production in New York at this tiny little theater in Greenwich Village in the basement of an old building with about 90 seats. It was about the size of my office. The cast was almost as big as the audience. And I was so mad at my friend Steve. When you come to New York once a year, shouldn't you see Wicked or Hamilton or Fun Home, something more, I don't know, something more New York, but our town? And so we went. There was almost no set or staging. We sat in the first row. We were so close to the uh, actors that they decided to make us part of the play. The stage manager gave my wife an index card at the beginning of the play. She had her off-Broadway debut, two lines. And when it was all over, I had to apologize to Steve for my skepticism about our town. And there's a reason it's obligatory for every high school in America to do it at least once a decade. It is an American masterpiece. Pulitzer Prize, 1938. The name of the town is Nazareth, Galilee. Latitude, 32 degrees, 48 minutes. Longitude, 35 degrees, 17 minutes. Population in 30 AD, about 500. 48 donkeys. A dog could go to sleep in the middle of Main Street and nothing would disturb him all day. Religiously, 85% Jewish, 8% Jewish worshipers, the rest indifferent. Politically, 86% Zionists, 6% Roman Tories and Toadies, the rest indifferent. Nobody remarkable ever come out of it so far as we know. Well, there was that one remarkable citizen who went on to some global renown, but we missed it. One day, Jesus goes to his hometown and preaches a sermon at the synagogue on the Sabbath. There's the nanny who changed his diapers. There's the third, third grade Sunday school teacher who taught him everything he knows about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. There's the high school algebra teacher who gave him a C- minus because he was always daydreaming about God in math class. There's the farmer who gave him his first job picking green beans at 10 cents an hour. There are his younger brothers and sisters who could never live up to the lofty expectations set by the family's firstborn son. And Jesus' sermon is a masterpiece of esoteric scholarship and daring imagination and exquisite poetry and homey, practical, take it home and put it in the bank wisdom. And his friends and neighbors have no idea what to make of all this. Where did this man get all this? Isn't this Mary's son? Can you hear the rather, the rather unsubtle cut in that remark and that unkind epithet? In first century Palestine, a man was always the son of his father, never of his mother, unless, of course, they were uncertain about who the father was. Perhaps Jesus' patrilineage is uncertain. Was Joseph his father? Maybe. You know what they were calling him? Bastard is what they were calling him. 
Where did this man get all this? We didn't teach him this. We don't know any of this. They took offense at him, says your English Bibles. But the Greek verb is scandalizo. They were scandalized by him. They were horrified by him. Jesus is so hurt that all he can think to say is some worn-out, hackneyed bromide that had become commonplace long before he repeated it. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his own family, and in his own house. (laughs) The Greek historian Plutarch would later put it like this, you will find that the most sensible and wise of people are little cared for in their hometowns, yes. You see what's happening, right? This is Nazareth. This is Grover's Corners. Nothing remarkable ever come out of it so far as they know. And Nazarene self-esteem is so negligible, they don't think much of themselves, they can't even conceive that one of their own would grow up to be a snappy celebrity and a world-changing revolutionary. They belong to the Groucho Marx School of Character Assessment. I could never belong to a club that would have me as a member. The French essayist Michel Montaigne noticed that the further he got from home, the more he was respected. Isn't that one of life's little ironies? That the further you get from the ones you love, the more admired you are? He said, a man may appear to the world a marvel, yet his wife and children see nothing remarkable about him. Few men have been wonders to their families. Anybody relate to this? The pop philosopher Alain de Baton called it a curious bias against what is at hand. I love the way he puts that, a curious bias against what is at hand, what we know, what we take for granted, what's right in our own backyards, sometimes literally. There's a substantial article in this morning's New York Times about Terry Gross, the fresh air host who has conducted 13,000 interviews in 40 years working for NPR. She started when she was 24 years old. She teaches us so much. She learns so much just by listening, just by paying attention, just by asking questions. And the article talked about the intimate connection she makes with her conversation partners. A couple of years ago, she dialed up Maurice Sendak at his home in Connecticut. This was just months before he died. Maurice Sendak, where the wild things are. And he was so pleased to be talking to Terry Gross that he almost sounded like a groupie or a fan. When I heard that you wanted to interview me, he says, I was so pleased. There's something so special and unique about you. He goes on, there are so many beautiful things that I will have to leave behind when I die, but I'm ready, he says. I'm glad I will be gone before you're gone, he says, because then I won't have to miss you. She teaches us so much by showing us the treasure in the commonplace. My friend lost his 26-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident, and he was completely 
unprepared for this. It never occurred to him that he would have to say farewell so soon to someone so dear. And reflecting upon his loss afterward, he said, we take each other too much for granted. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. We do not treasure each other enough. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. We all want to meet God face to face. We want this shocking epiphany, this life-changing eureka. We want Jacob's ladder or Moses' stone tablets or Elijah's flaming chariots or David's haunting songs or Paul's blinding light on the road to Damascus. But what if God comes to us more stealthily than that? What if God's glad good news comes to us incognito, disguised in the common cloth of our own kith and kin? What if Christ walks among us in latter days and fleshed as one of our own, the cooing infant whose bath you draw every evening, she whose exterior semblance doth belie her soul's immensity, she who trailing clouds of glory doth come from God who is her home. The quirky, difficult adolescent whose unfettered, defiant imagination stridently questions the received wisdom of the status quo. The familiar beggar with his proffered cup outside the L station, whom you acknowledge on your good days and ignore on your bad the Alzheimer's patient you accompany at the nursing home from whose baffling senescence lucid truths might flare up without warning. The estranged brother you always scoffed at when you were young, but now who's grown in his maturity kind and wise and good. The drab but capable office assistant whose routine but relentless attention to, to, to detail polishes your own work to a high sheen. The friend whose support is so reliable and whose companionship is so constant that you can take it for granted. The spouse you make love to but don't really see, talk to but really don't hear, whose love you're glad to receive but are reluctant to return, and who is, in fact, in cold, hard, but almost invisible fact, God's very grace and God's very gospel to you. When Emily Webb Gibbs, dead at the age of 26 from an accident of childbirth, is given the chance to return from the land of the shades to the land of the living for one day, it's her 12th birthday. All that happens is still in the future for the living. One day, her 12th birthday. She's so horrified by the blindness of the living to the glories of the commonplace that she rush, rushes quickly back to the cemetery. Oh, Mama, just look at me for one minute as if you see me. Fourteen years have gone by, Mama. I'm dead. You're a grandmother, Mama. I married George Gibbs. Wally's dead too, Mama. Burst his appendix on a trip to North Conway. It goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. 
Oh, earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Realize life while you live it. A great prophet might rise up from your common hometown. Good news is right here. In the beginning, grace. In the end, grace. Every day between, grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.